Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so happy to be joined today by Melissa Phoebos. She's the author of the memoir, Whip Smart, and two essay collections, Abandon Me, and her latest is Girlhood. She's an associate professor at the University of Iowa, where she teaches in the nonfiction writing program. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much, Maris. I'm so glad to be here. I read Girlhood and had a couple of sleepless nights. I think that's maybe that's the ultimate compliment. <laughs> I think it kind of is, unless it's my mom who also <laughs> always tells me she has a sleepless night after she reads my work. And I think that's a different situation. That's <laughs> but so for funny you, because your you. book is so much about the male gaze, but I was also thinking about the mom gaze and mm -hmm. like <laughs> mm -hmm. what, how it feels to have her read your writing or even like if my mom is listening to this right now, buckle up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really, um, I have a long history with the mom gaze. I mean, I guess all of us with moms do, but, um, but particularly in terms of my work, it's, she's, it's just sort of like a gauntlet that she walks back and forth through <laughs> every time I publish a book and, um, she's amazing. She's a psychotherapist and she's like my best friend. Um, and she's really uh, sort of taken it all like a champ. Um, and at this point, I think she knows uh, there isn't that much at this point that she doesn't know about. Um, and, you know, but still my books are pretty much catalogs of everything that no parent should really ever have to know about their <laughs> child. Um, and she's integrated it with a lot of grace. Um, I know that this book, she definitely sort of read it piecemeal because right. it was it was, it was a lot you know but I'm also really fortunate you know like we've had a lot of conversations where she's very earnestly asked me is there anything I could have done differently like I sort of torment myself with that question occasionally and my answer is always absolutely not she was amazing and there is no no mom could counter the you know, social conditioning of patriarchy. Like they can only do what she did, which is love me really, really well and set me up to sort of um, sublimate all of those experiences into some some kind of happiness, which I've been able to do. Well, oh, Melissa, like it, that's, that's so lovely. And I, I, I think so much of the book is grappling with, like we are aware of all the systems of oppression uh, in, at work uh, to mm -hmm. make us feel ashamed or to hate our bodies. And yet it's hard to stop hating your body or stop yeah. feeling shame. Yeah. Yeah. It's like been one of the central conflicts of my life since I was 10, 11. Uh, you know, my mom is a uh, bisexual and a super feminist and I grew up with like Ms. Magazine stacked up in the bathroom and like playing with my toys in the corner while she was at her like now meetings and um and I remember really young at least as a teenager thinking I know that the media is brainwashing me to hate my body I know about feminism and yet I still have an eating disorder and hate my body like what what's the deal um and of course like intellectually understanding something doesn't immunize ourselves to it. Um, and in many ways, I think the mission of this book is like, okay, so what does, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or like, what, what, can, what deeper comprehension of this knowledge can actually help liberate us from that brainwashing? Is it possible? To what extent is it possible? Because knowing it has, has never saved me. Yeah, 
And, and so one of the most exciting things to me, exciting is a weird word, um, is you have a, um, an essay that begins with a description of going to a cuddle party. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Melissa, it made me feel so viscerally uncomfortable. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and and here you take something like, I understand the idea of skin hunger and how people feel better when they are touched. And mm-hmm. I think after this past year, we, we yep. know it even more. Yep. But that yeah. doesn't take away the absolute terror I felt when you had to decide whether or not to hug someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause that essay, like, you know, I wrote it in, I wrote the first draft in like late 2018 um, with absolutely no foresight um, to our current circumstances. Um, and I finished it like very shortly before I finished editing the book, like, right as the pandemic was sort of starting. Um, and so it, it interestingly sort of like, it just hits very differently now. <laughs> um, and, and actually a version of that essay is, is going to be published in the, in the New York times magazine next week, but I had to sort of rewrite the frame of it looking sure. and in, in with just like a few tweaks, it really does sort of speak directly to our current situation. Um, but that was the response that I had when my friend sent me a link to this thing called the cuddle party, which was sort of like half invitation, half joke. Um, and when I read the description, I was like, absolutely not like, no cuddle, like a cuddling orgy. I just like the, the, the response, the like sort of fear and repulsion that I felt was actually so powerful that my second response was, I probably should go to this thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everything I've ever felt that strong of an aversion to has been some kind of mirror or like there was something in me that was responding to it that was like deeply historical that needed mm-hmm. to be sort of excavated, right? Um which I don't know, like that impulse has led me to like basically everything I've ever written about. Um, but yeah, and, and as it turns out, like a cuddle party is something that I wish, I don't know, its mission of sort of teaching people about affirmative consent and also like conditioning a different kind of manners where, you know, so at the cuddle party, when you ask someone to cuddle, which is required to cuddle, um, if the other person says no, the person who invited them to cuddle has to say thank you for taking care of yourself, which was also just like cringe, right? Yeah. Um, but, but, but wonderful. I wish, like, right. I came away from the experience really just wishing that we started doing that kind of role play in, as children, right? Mm-hmm. Because our culture would be so different. And certainly I would not have responded at the cuddle party the way that I did, which right. is to agree to cuddle with people that I did not want to cuddle with without even thinking about it. Just like not like, no, just didn't feel like an option. And so I sort of lived out my worst nightmare <laughs> at the cuddle party. Um, and it sent me on this whole sort of mission that resulted in the essay. And, and you talk about I was similarly struck when I was reading Jeannie Vanasco's memoir about mm-hmm. confronting her rapist. So uncomfortable, so compelling. And, 
how she once again knows in her head that she's not meant to make him feel comfortable <laughs> and that it's not about his feelings, it's about hers, but there is something in her that makes her feel better mm -hmm. comforting him mm -hmm. and worrying about his needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book, uh, what a wonderful book. So uncomfortable to read. I just devoured it and felt kind of horrible <laughs> while I was doing so because I related so much and and I think it's you know like uh, the sort of exploration of her book and and you know what I was trying to do in that cuddle party essay is really sort of pull back the veil on these more nuanced elements of trauma which are not it's it's I you know in the book I really talk about how I don't want to use that word because yeah. it feels like a different much more refined experience um that we can volunteer ourselves for these experiences that then do work on our psyches in ways that map on to descriptions of trauma right but we sort of uh, negotiate them and consent to them. And this is like the more granular way that patriarchy works in our brains and that we haven't had an occasion to talk about because we were still working out the like more yeah. violent aspects of trauma. Yeah. And now that like, we can like more or less agree that we don't want women to experience those. It feels like now we've arrived at a place where we can put words to those more granular experiences. And, and so you put words, I mean, the, the concept of empty consent mm -hmm. is something that really struck me, sleepless night. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's about saying yes when it's just, easier to say yes. And it's not mm -hmm. even, it doesn't even have to be sexual. Like that's right. so interesting to me, like how many times I have just avoided thinking about what I needed to, to avoid conflict, which is like the main, yep. my main yep. goal. And like to mm -hmm. please other people is so much more important to me most days than, than mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, you know, the essay focuses on sort of the physical boundaries of that and, and their effects. But I think, you know, every woman I know, um, and many men also know how it, how it insinuate that dynamic insinuates itself into every aspect of our lives. Like I have, um, you know, take given readings, uh, taught at conferences, had many, many yeah. lunches with people that I did not know or did not like, yeah. um, just because it felt easier to, to hand myself over than to negotiate saying no and my own discomfort at someone else's disappointment. You know, like it really goes so, the conditioning is so deep, you know, from sort of hugging acquaintances to like having a coffee where someone can pick my brain about something like just, um, and I think the place that I arrive when I really start to think about this, you know, negotiating it throughout the day, it just feels like isolated incidents where I'm like, okay, I'll compromise. Okay, I'll yield to this. Okay, I'll yield to this. Okay, I'll help this person do this. Uh, but the cumulative effect of it when I really think about it is a life that is defined by strangers like my life suddenly becomes oriented around activities that other people have chosen for me and that is not a life that I that I want and then suddenly you find yourself in front of some man at a cuddle party <laughs> exactly spooning with a man in an adult onesie that <laughs> whose name I don't even know um and that's just not 
I don't know. There is something really shocking about it because I'm like, I'm a, you know, at the time I was like a, a feminist, a 37 year old feminist, lifelong feminist, not, I don't even sleep with men. It's like, what am what's happening here? Um, and I, and, and it really sort of led me to a different kind of resolution about, you know, boundaries that I think was a long time coming. And I actually remember having a conversation with my mom when I was in my early thirties and I was talking about like, I don't know, someone not liking me or being disappointed in me or something and how uncomfortable that was. And she said, look, if you can learn to become comfortable with other people's disappointment by the time you're like 45, you will be way ahead of the game. And I was like, okay, so I'm I'm on track. I'm on track to get there. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit though about designing a survey to send to women about empty consent and um, and what you found. Yeah, I, I, you know, I basically um, after the cuddle party and after those uh, that sort of empty consenting to cuddling, I um, I thought, wow, this is a mechanism that's been at work in me my entire life, like at least from adolescence on. I think you know, probably even from earlier, my mom was not a like, you must hug that stranger type of parent, which is rare. But even so, I'm sure there are plenty of ways that I was conditioned to accept touch from people that I didn't really know or want. Um, But it's not something I had ever talked about with anyone. I had never even really had that dialogue in my own mind about it. It was like, so, so the default, you know, and I thought, I suspect that it is not just me. Um, and, but I've never had that conversation. And so that's my impulse. And that was my impulse with a lot of these essays was yeah. sort of observing and trying to sort of dig up or reveal the mechanism in me that compromised my own bodily sovereignty, my own wishes, my own desires, whatever. Um, and so, you know, I talked with like my partner and maybe a couple friends and I was like, I want to know on a bigger scale. And so I just asked like, number one, have you ever experienced touch? You didn't want non-consensual touch to sort of get that out of the way. And then I, the second question was, have you, have you ever consented to touch you don't want? Um, and sort of, what do you think about that? What were the effects of that? Have you stopped doing that? And how, you know, I was just like, how do we do this? Do we all have this? How do we stop it? (laughs) You know, we stop doing it. Um, because understanding feminist ideology has not been enough for me. It has not even touched it really. Um, and I just gave the survey to like my close friends and was like, pass it to your friends. And I got back probably 50 surveys. And I looked at about 30 of them. I, I ended up using sort of about 30 of them in, in the essay. And it was, it, it just took my breath away, Maris. It was like, and it was one of those experiences where it was both like confirming something. As I read them, I realized I deeply already knew this. Like, of course, this is, this is American culture, <laughs> right? Um, And I was also just completely shocked reading them. And over and over, I read these accounts from women and it was like starting in childhood all the way through punctuated often by assault and rape. But in between those, just sexual experiences, physical experiences that they did not want their whole lives. And at the end of it, a majority of them said, I've never thought about this. I've never talked about this. Even if you don't use this, I'm so glad that I was able to sort of pull back the curtain on my own experience, you know? Um, And in that way, it felt like a really sort of fundamental 
feminist experience. It was like a little paper version of like a consciousness raising group where we were like, Hey, are you all experiencing this? I am too. Like, what can we do? You know, it, it struck me so profoundly that I bought the art that, that uh, goes along with the essay by uh, Forsyth Harmon. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. And it's a black and white print that says it is the thing I've been trying to undo in myself. And it has been a life's work. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. just buy the art if you have a chance. Yeah. yeah. I love, I mean, her, uh, it was so fun to collaborate with her and, and think about sort of what mostly she pulled the lines from the essays that mm-hmm. one, we went back and forth a few times trying to find the exact right sort of phrase that would speak to the experience and really focus it with this one. I think not so much on the harm that was done or sort of a, a, something that gestured towards victimization, but, but really towards the sort of resolution. If, if I, I can say that there is one to that essay, which is like, how do we undo this? It is a life's work. Like how do we build this undoing into our daily interactions, into our conversations with each other and really sort of recondition our own thinking, you know, it's a, it's a very patient work. <laughs> and, and then even like, I, through the lens of this essay, I went back and reread some of your earlier essays. And I was so struck by um, the idea that there is a neighborhood kid who spit on you and who made Mm -hmm. you feel uncomfortable in so many different ways. And you wrote in your diary Mm-hmm. In capital letters that it was so fun to hang out with him because you had to you had to lie to yourself mm-hmm. that was like I would say if anything that that discovery um really sort of um turned over the engine that drove me through this whole book um the writing of this whole book uh because I like many of the experiences that that I use as sort of jumping off points to look at larger issues in the essays, I had not thought about that experience for years and years and years. Like it was just really, and I'm like a memoirist who sort of specializes in confronting like like shady experiences from my past. (laughs) And there were just so many, there were so many logs to upturn. And, um, and this one, it really, um, you know, I went back, I remembered that this neighbor had sort of tormented me and spat on me and that I hadn't told anyone. And I went back and I looked in my old journal from when I was like 11 or whatever. And I was, it was another one of those experiences where I was, it was like an emotional feeling of like deep recognition and also horror and just like grief to see that little me had done such an immaculate sort of cleanup job on my own abuse, you know, had gone back and been like, oh, I played soccer at so-and-so's house and it was so fun, all caps, exclamation points. And I just like, I don't know, it, it was the first moment of many in the writing of this book where I sort of looked at a past self who had kind of exiled and been like, I don't want to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing there, nothing to see here, you know? Right. Um, and just felt like I wanted to hug her, you know what I mean? And felt like as an adult, like I can go back safely and actually look at what happened here. At the time, it didn't feel possible. Like I had really wonderful parents. Like I could have, they would have stopped it, but it just like did not feel like an option. And I think that's true for a lot of people who are bullied, you know, where I was just like, how do I 
explain that my sexualized body is drawing this kind of attention from someone. Cause I think I knew that even back then. And I was like, I don't know how to describe this. I think it's my fault and no one can know about this. Um, Self blame is, is another theme that you go back to again mm-hmm. and again. And yeah, it's th- like, we are just yeah. taught from the youngest age that. And there's a, yeah, there's a way. And I think this is I've talked to a lot of other women about this. There's just this way that I think, no, like I, as a kid, I thought like, I, I'm smart, I'm powerful. Like there were all these ways that I understood my own integrity and yet also that belief sat parallel to them that somehow I've drawn this on myself. And even as an adult, I'm like, oh, you know, victim blaming, self-blame. Like I know about that. So I should be immune to it, but I'm absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. And in fact, believing that, helped it take a really long time for me to be able to go back and, and, and see what really happened. Yeah. And I, I, I love the way in that essay, how, I mean, you do this throughout the book that you can take examples from your own life and examples from literature and examples from a popular movie mm-hmm. and, and connect them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so much of that is about what happens if someone calls you a slut. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And that was, you know, that's another really big one of an experience that I had of being like really intense, intensely slut shamed for like a year, which isn't, you know, that long in the context of a life, but um, it was a profound experience. And then another one that I didn't talk to anyone about and that I sort of developed a narrative where it was like, yeah, that was shitty but it wasn't that big of a deal. I wasn't ever assaulted really um, I consented to everything that happened during that year and I'll just package it up and put it away and not look at it again for a really long time. Um, and, and I honestly, like there was a voice in my head all the way into the writing of the essay, the mirror test about that, that was like, no one cares, no one cares, no one cares, no one, like really intensely. That essay actually wasn't in the first draft of the book that I sent my editor and we had this conversation that it was sort of missing something. And I had intended to write an essay on that topic. And the voice was just telling me like, nobody cares about that. Already people, there's too many, you know, it's already sort of in the culture enough. Like nobody wants to hear about being slut shamed. We've already done that. Um, And then I went back and I started writing it and it was just one of those experiences where it was just like, you know, I started pulling (laughs) on the thread and it just like unraveled. And I was in like a room full of yarn, if I'm gonna stick with that (laughs) weird metaphor, but. yeah, there was just a lot there. There was a lot there. And, um, and I, and it made me aware of how, how, how carefully, how immaculately I had carried that sort of harm and that experience with me and how much it had informed my relationship to sexuality, my relationship to my body, um, because I had refused to look at it. And I was like, fuck, I've been in therapy for so long. <laughs> like, and still, like, are we really still talking about this? And the answer is just always yes. We're still Yeah, talking. it's always yes. And you even like you talk about Foucault and you talk about the Panopticon and like mm-hmm. still thinking about other people's gazes. Yeah. yeah. And there's something I think in many ways, like what I love about the essay form. And, and the particular way that I write essays is a way of thinking about a really personal sort of shame swaddled experience and just taking it sort of showing it to other women, finding uh, 
company in the experience and then taking it and sort of testing it against theorists and sociologists mm -hmm. and literature and uh, pop culture. And, you know, it's like every sort of act of that peels away some of that shame because I can just see how much I am not reinventing the wheel in my own experience. Like people have right. been writing about yeah. this very isolated, very personal feeling experience, like for centuries, <laughs> you know, like this dynamic has been at work sort of insinuating its way into women's minds and lives and defining their relationships to their bodies, like literally for centuries. And I want to talk briefly about the essay intrusions because that, mm -hmm. You go from John McPhee to Revenge of the Nerds. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just how, well, and then, well, I'll, I'll give it away. James Elroy. Holy Ooh, shit. What a disappointment. What a disappointment. Yeah. I mean, that was like, talk about things not aging well. I feel like I have this experience now where like my partner and I will sometimes be like, oh, we want to watch a 90s rom-com and we look at them on Netflix or whatever. And we're like, that's not going to age well. That's <laughs> not gonna age well. Because it's just like what we now define as like assault was basically like often a trope in rom-com and comedy movies, you know? Um, and I'm thinking specifically of like Revenge of the Nerds yeah. or even like 16 Candles, like there are all these movies where like, I feel like we we started to see the racism <laughs> and oh, now yeah. we're seeing the uh, that deeper level of like misogyny and sexism that's in there. Um, yeah, so intrusions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, that as a kink, voyeurism is wonderful and it requires a great deal of consent. And if you mm -hmm. don't have that level of consent, it's it's bad. Yeah, it is bad. But there's just like, this is another thing, kind of like empty consent, where it was like, it happened to me. It didn't fall under any definition mm -hmm. that I knew of crime or trauma or assault. And there is such a robust cultural narrative that I wasn't thinking about at the time, but that normalized the experience of being sort of peeped on or stalked, stranger stalked in a certain kind of way that I was like, I don't know where to go with this. And I actually did go to the police and they sort of laughed me out of their uh, preach. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I guess I'll just like move and not ever think about this again. And I didn't think about it again until I started writing that essay. It was, you know, and then when I started doing that thing where I took the experience, I talked to some other women and then I brought it to sort of like the movies that were really popular growing up, uh, short story, short literary short stories. And I was like, oh, it actually makes perfect sense that I just stuffed it. I just buried it and never thought about it again and taped my curtains shut <laughs> for like the rest of my life, you know? That, yeah. That's a what a detail that you thought you were over it and then your partner had to tell you that you amazing I know it's really just like I've as a person who thinks of herself as very self-aware and extremely processed it's just been a, a long series of being humbled by my own repressions <laughs> Melissa the, thank you for writing this wonderful book uh girlhood um before we go are there a couple of books you'd like to recommend I absolutely would. Um, 
2021 is like such a blockbuster year for publishing. There's so many books coming out and let's see. Um, I'm going to say two and, and one of them is by the illustrator of girlhood for Scythe Harmon, who has her own debut novel called Justine. And it's just recently out um, from Tin House. And actually her book and my book share an illustration, um, which to me feels like it makes them family. Um, and I love that. It's a beautiful book. Um, and then I would also say Alyssa Washuda's essay collection, White Magic, which is coming out, I think in June or July. And it's just, Alyssa is such an amazing essayist and it is a weird, captivating, funny, devastating um, essay collection that's really doing something new. So I would say Justine and White Magic. Love it. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you so much, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.